Welcome. We're so glad that you've connected with us today. We are continuing a message series called Hope for Everyone. If you've missed any of these in the series, any of these messages, you can go back to our website at lakeshorechristian.com and catch them there. In this series, what we've been doing is following Jesus through this last week of his life leading up to the cross, to the grave, and to the resurrection. So far, we've looked at Jesus in the upper room with his disciples as he spent time there at the Passover meal and instituted with them what we now know as the Lord's Supper. When they left that upper room, Jesus took them out to the Garden of Gethsemane, and there he prayed that agonizing prayer, Not my will, Father, but your will be done. And then we see already that they came and arrested Jesus and took him through the mockery of a trial. And they abused him and they ridiculed him and they beat him severely. And then they made the decision to crucify him. Last week we looked at how they took Jesus and nailed him to that cross. And there he bled and died. And he made that statement, it is finished, it is completed, now the payment that needed to be made there. So today we pick up with the actual response to his death. There was a guy named Jim who had been traveling. He got to the airport off the plane there. He went and got his luggage off the carousel and he went out front to catch a taxi to get to a meeting he was on his way to. And a taxi pulled up and he got in and he uh, had sat in the back seat there and he was working on some things and just staying very, very quiet. Didn't say anything to the taxi driver. The taxi driver didn't say anything to him. It was just really quiet for about 20 minutes. And then Jim realized he needed to give him some instructions about where he was going to be dropped off. So he reached up and tapped the driver on the shoulder. And the driver screamed and swerved and he ran off into a ditch and came to a sudden stop. And when the dust settled and they realized they were both okay, Jim said to the taxi driver, I am so sorry. I didn't mean to startle you like that. I didn't know that Tapping you on the shoulder would do that. And he said, well, I've got to tell you, today is my first day as a taxi driver. For the past 20 years, my job was driving a hearse for the funeral home. <laughs> you see, he had not been used to anyone tapping him on the shoulder from the back of his vehicle. We all respond differently to death. As a pastor, I have been around families through death many, many times. And I have been around them through the funeral and going out to the graveside in the burial of the body. And I've seen almost every different kind of reaction you can imagine. And today, as we look in Matthew chapter 27, we're going to look at the response to his death, the response of those who loved him and believed in him, and also the response of those that considered him an enemy. The first thing we see that took place is once he had died is they buried him. Let's pick up in verse 57. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. So Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of a rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. It's significant that Joseph, as a believer, uh, as a wealthy man, who had a tomb already that he had purchased, probably for himself and his own family, he knew that tomb had not been used and it was available, and his desire was to make sure that the body of Jesus was taken down off that cross and buried properly. You see, it was the Sabbath day approaching, and they had a Jewish law that said the body needed to be taken down and buried before the beginning of the Sabbath, and Joseph was making sure that he could do that. 
The other Gospels tell us that Joseph was, yes, a disciple of Jesus, but he was also a prominent member of the Council of the Sanhedrin. And it says he was a secret disciple. You see, the other members of the Sanhedrin were very suspicious of Jesus, and they were part of the crowd that decided they needed to crucify Jesus. And Joseph, Joseph had kept his belief in Jesus a secret to them, probably for his own protection through that process. But now he's willing to publicly go do something significant for Jesus and making sure that his body is buried properly. So we see first that they buried him. But it was hurried, and they had to just wrap it quickly and put it in that tomb and roll the stone in front. They see the next thing that was a response is they continued to care for him. In verse 61, it says both uh, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary was sitting there opposite the tomb. These women were prominent in this uh, process of Jesus' life and ministry, of his death and his burial. These women were there through the whole thing. They had observed Jesus on the cross, and now they followed Joseph as he took the body and put it in the tomb. And we find out later that on, on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, early that morning, after they had followed the law to rest on the Sabbath day, they were the women uh, that came along with others to make sure they finished what needed to do, be done for the preparation of the body, the total preparation that needed to occur for the body. And they brought herbs and spices and all that we have done that didn't get done before because of how hurriedly they had to go and put that body in the tomb. They probably watched Joseph and whoever was with Joseph, and they thought, man, a lot of things didn't get done that needed to be done. We'll come back and finish the job later when we have the opportunity after the Sabbath day. So they were caring for Jesus through this whole process for his body, the way they had cared for him in his life. We see the third thing here is the response of the enemies. The enemies decided they needed to respond in a certain way too. And they decided they needed to guard him. Let's pick up in verse 62. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he had been raised from the dead. The last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. It amazes me every time I read this story how the enemies of Jesus remembered this prediction and it was so prominent in their minds. His followers didn't seem to be focusing on that so much as they were the death and the grief that they were feeling. But his enemies remembered this prediction very clearly. And so they decided the way to keep this from being a rumor that got started that maybe he had risen from the dead, they could make sure that his disciples never had the opportunity to go take that body out of that tomb and make it look like maybe he had risen. So they went to Pilate, and Pilate wanted to keep the the crowd happy too. Remember, he had given in to them for the crucifixion. Now he's trying to keep the peace still. So he says, yes, you can go make the tomb secure. He even says you could take a guard and post it at the tomb. This would be a Roman guard. And it looks like maybe they're saying one person, but the word that's used here means a guard unit. So a, a whole unit of, of a guard unit of the Roman army, the best military in the world, 
is assigned to go and guard that tomb. And so they went with the guard and they made sure they got the tomb sealed up. And usually it was a mixture of sometimes of clay or wax. And they would normally put a seal or insignia in the clay or the wax. It says it was sealed by the authority of the Roman government, which meant that if anyone broke that seal, they would be violating Roman law and could be prosecuted for that. And so they put that seal on there and they posted the guard to be sure that nobody could ever claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. One author has said that that word, uh, that phrase, to go and make the tomb as secure as you know how, is one of the most futile orders ever given. Because the truth is, God had a plan that meant no matter how secure they tried to make that tomb, it wasn't going to be secure enough to keep God from raising his son from the dead. These responses to that death remind us of why we need to learn to have hope when we face hard things in their life. So I want to close today with three lessons about hope. Three things that we need to remember when we go through hard times or challenges or struggles, and we all do. So the first lesson I want us to think about today is this. We need to learn to be realistic as Christ followers. By being realistic, I mean we need to learn not to be surprised when trouble comes into our lives. Jesus told us in John 16, 33, he says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. So he's saying, I, I've given you my teaching, I've given you my example, I've done all of these things so that you could have the ability to have peace. Now, that does, doesn't that sound great? Jesus wants us to have peace in our lives. And sometimes we think that means, okay, that means he ought to keep all bad things out of our lives and block us from all problems and all trouble. But that's not what Jesus teaches here. Listen to his words. He says, I've told you these things that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. Now, he's just said, I want you to have peace. I've taught you these things so you can have peace. And then right away, he says, in this world, you will have trouble. Now, the reason that should give us hope is this. He's saying, even though you're going to have trouble, what I've taught you, the example that I've set for you, my life, my ministry, my presence in the middle of that trouble will give you peace, even though you're going to have trouble. And so he says, in this world, you will have trouble. We're going to have sickness. We're going to have death. We're going to have a pandemic. Jesus knew all of those things in advance. And he said, in the middle of all of those things, I've done, I've taught, I've set the example that will allow you to have peace. He went on to say, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. Be encouraged. Hold on to your hope, he said, because I have overcome the world. When his disciples heard that teaching in John chapter 16, Jesus had not yet gone to the cross. He had not yet been put in that tomb, and they had not yet experienced as eyewitnesses, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He's preparing them in advance for all the hard things they are about to face because he knew that they were going to need to have hope in the midst of the hard things that they would go through. And he knew when he said these words that you, that I, would have hard things to go through. But he wanted us to know that he has overcome the world. So the first lesson we learn about hope is this. Be realistic. Understand that trouble will come, but Jesus has overcome the world. He's overcome any problem, any struggle that we might have to face, even death itself. 
And so the death of Jesus is a source of hope. So we need to be realistic, but secondly, we need to be patient. I love what James has to say about this in James chapter 1, beginning with verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, doesn't that sound contradictory? Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of all kinds. Why would we consider that pure joy? He's not saying be glad for the trials. That's not what he's teaching. He's saying you can have joy in knowing what God can do and will do and promises to do in and through the trials that you face. And he teaches us what those things are. He says, listen, he says you can have joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So he's connecting the trials that we go through with how they are a testing of our faith, testing with the intent not of destroying our faith, but of strengthening our faith and clarifying our faith. That's what the testing is. So that the testing of your faith, he says, can produce perseverance. We'll be stronger. We'll be better able to handle things and get through things the more we go through and see the faithfulness of God. He says, let the perseverance uh, let perseverance then finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. When we respond to testings and trials properly and we allow God to work on us through those times and those challenges, then what that does for us is God grows us up. He matures us through the testing and the trials. And we end up coming out the other side of them stronger and better. And then he tells us, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. In the middle of the trials, the place to turn is to seek God and the wisdom of God, the guidance of God, and seek what it is God is wanting to do in us and through us in the middle of the trial. The challenge is to hold on to your faith in the hard times while you trust him and allow him to do his work on you and through you. God I have found, does his best work when we've done all that we can do and we are forced to depend on him and him alone for the rest. That's when God's power, God's strength, God's love comes to the surface more than ever as we see God at work through those hard things. Sometimes we don't see it in the middle of it, but we can know with faith that he's working even when we don't see it and feel it. He's working. You see, you can't trust your emotions. You have to trust your Father. And your Father is faithful to do what we can't do to bring good out of those circumstances. So that leads to the third thing about hope, and that's this. We need to be faithful through the process. In Hebrews 11:1, 1, it says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. He is working even when we don't see it. That's why Paul could say in Romans 8:28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Did you notice that? In what things? In all things. In a pandemic? Yes. Through, through suffering? Yes. Through illness? Yes. Through job uh, insecurity? Yes. Through financial struggles? Yes. God can work in all things for the good of those who love him. So here's the question. Are you one of those who love God? Have you made that decision that you will answer his call on your life? Because this promise is for those who love him and who have responded to his call and are now living for him. 
See, here's what this can do for you. Not very long after his burial, the burial of Jesus, Peter stands up. One who, who had denied Jesus, one who had hidden away during this time after his death. This same Jesus stands up on the day of Pentecost and preaches the first gospel message ever preached. And he proclaims the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And the people who heard the message were convicted. And they asked the most important question, what must we do? And Peter told them how to respond. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Where are you in your response to God's love and God's promise? Have you turned from sin and repentance? Have you been obedient in Christian baptism, been buried with him there? If you've not taken those steps yet, we, we would love to help you through that process. You just contact us. We will follow up with you and guide you through that. But it begins with your decision to love the Lord and to follow him and accept the forgiveness that he offers through the death of his son. And here's the amazing thing. He promises not only forgiveness of sins, but he promises a gift of his Holy Spirit. Romans 8:11. I love what he said there. He said this about the Spirit. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. You see, it's your response to God's offer that allows you to receive forgiveness of sins. And God gives you this amazing gift. God himself in spirit comes to indwell you, your body, so that you now have the power in you that is the same power that took Jesus' body from that tomb and raised it from the dead again. That's God's offer and promise to you. We're going to take a moment now to remember that death, burial, and resurrection. I'm so blessed, and you are too, to be part of a fellowship that does this every Lord's Day, where we come around the Lord's table in this memorial meal to remember especially what Christ has done for us to give us that hope of resurrection. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that today we've been able to remember the death that he died in a way that reminds us it is actually a source of hope that Jesus was willing to go into that grave for us because we will all face death in the grave too. And we will face all the challenges of living in this world. And yet we know that he has overcome the world. Thank you that we can remember Jesus on the cross, Jesus in the tomb, Jesus risen and living today. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.